I'm Steve Vibronix, and this is the Life in Dub podcast, talking to people who live their lives in dub and reggae. Episode number 31. Welcome to the 31st episode of the Life in Dub podcast. I hope you're doing okay out there. Thanks again for tuning in to Life in Dub, and welcome to anyone tuning in for the first time. This is the podcast that digs deep into reggae and dub history, delivering in-depth interviews with people who live their lives through music. Don't forget, there are 30 previous episodes to check out at lifeanddub.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've got any questions or just want to say hi, you can email me at vibronics at gmail.com. It's great to hear what you think about the podcast. This week, I want to talk about, well, actually nothing. You see, this week, the episode is much longer than usual, so I don't want to take up any more of your valuable time. But don't worry, my theories and opinions on all things reggae and sound system will return next time. This week, my guest is Mad Professor. We've been planning this interview since the start of the podcast series, so it's great to finally get to talk about his life in dub. With a legend like Mad Professor, it's just not possible to get a whole life story. We'd literally be talking for days. But what we do get is some amazing insight into when he started out, the barriers he encountered, and the struggles he overcame at the start of an incredible career. A career that continues right up to this day. So enough of me, let's get on with the interview. Well, Mad Professor, welcome to the Life in Dub podcast. Okay, thank you. Nice, nice. Glad you could join me. It's great to see through the video there some shots of where we were, like the legendary studio. Um, and what I do at the start of the podcast is I ask everyone the same question. Um, and that's a question about, it's, and it's a way to kind of kickstart the thing and start talking about music and just to name a track that was really influential. You look back and you think, you know what, that, that track that track really influenced me or changed things, something for me. Or I don't know if you've got an example of a track like that you, you, you can think of. Yes, You Are Everything. By the stylistics. Okay, okay. And what makes you mention that track? Because it's a track where the skill of the engineer made an indelible stamp on the on the sound of the song of the hit. You know, it's like a brilliant bit of engineering and the use of the phaser is just a brilliant song good example of 1970 as a as a as a landmark where you know engineering came into influencing like songs whether they hit or miss you know where, where would you have heard that do you think was big hit. It was everywhere. I mean, I was a schoolboy. I was just listening to stuff, and that 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 woke me up. That made me want to uh, get more into engineering, and subsequently into production because of the sound of it. It just told you that you could do a lot with recordings if you had the time. And if you and if you really got into the technology, well, whilst we're talking about that, because it, I mean, like, like I say to, to the, the the people I've interviewed who've just got such a long, long career, it's so hard to kind of take everything in. But whilst talking about that and saying that you got 
interested in, in, in music and production. Like, how, how did you start to get involved in music? Uh, it depends on where you want to start. Where do you want to start with what was in my mind or, or, or when I started to actually attempt, attempt to become a professional, you know? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I'm interested in how you started at the beginning. Like, what made what made you want to start in music, and what? Because not it's not a career for everyone. No, no, many have tried. I mean, um, I personally, when I started, there wasn't. I mean, put it this way, a telephone was magic, a light bulb was magic, a radio was big magic, magic, because. That's what the sixties was like. Coming coming from the fifties, that's what so it's hard for you or anyone of a digital age to even imagine the effect of a radio. A radio in your front room, playing music with people jumping around and dancing. You cannot imagine effect because we had nothing else yeah and before the radio there was nothing like it i guess to have music piped into your house nothing like that and when you hear it you i mean you'd hear it very likely on medium wave it wasn't even fm mm-hmm. and 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 if you got an experience in radiology you'd know uh medium wave is noisy it's a constant static mm-hmm. and and then as you tune in, you hear the music or you hear the talking. Uh, medium wave is what they call AM, amplitude modulation. So as it goes up, it, you, could, you could hear it better. So how did you learn about all this stuff? Because it's so like... Well, I taught myself. I, you know, when, when I was small, as we go back to that period, I... We we had the two technical things in our house was a radio, a radiogram, which my mom had a few collections of shellac and um, 33 and uh, and 78 RPMs. And um, she would have like Jim Reeves and Nat King Cole and this kind of... Uh, you know, church songs. Mm-hmm. And she would get it out either at six, uh, five, six in the morning and play Jim Reeves like, we thank you every day, brother. we thank you every day, we thank you. And then she said, Neil, come on, go get dressed. Uh, we're going to go to church. And she would play that in the morning. So I gradually got into tampering because I was curious because I kept asking where's where's the man in the radio where's the song coming from you know I was curious how's that song coming out that's magic and one day when she went out I got a screwdriver went behind the radio when I look in I saw what I learned to be later resistors capacitors condensers diodes and even a couple of tubes giving off some heat. And I thought, this don't make sense. I want to know about this. And it started there. She came in, I got some licks. For, for messing with the radio. Yeah. And I, from then, 
she sent me to the library. I got some books. And I basically thought myself electronics. I learned about reading circuit diagrams. I learned about reading about color codes. Mm-hmm. I learned how a simple amplifier worked, how a simple radio worked. And I basically built my first radio by the age of 10. Was there a particular book or was there a whole load of books? Several books. Mm -hmm. Several books. Because electronics was the magic. It's like digital technology is now. You You know, it's a magic. Yeah. And you're either curious about it or you're not. And what, what about the actual music? Is I mean, w- were you drawn to the music, to the sounds of the music as well? Is that because well, obviously everyone knows you as a re- music producer? And well, I didn't. I didn't like a lot. Um, I mean, I didn't really like the Jim Reeves stuff and the Nat King Cole stuff. I mean, I thought, oh, this is boring. When it got a little bit more. Jazzy with like Motown. I mean, I you know I love the Motown stuff. I love like yeah, me too. This, the like the Supremes, Baby Love, and I mean I heard all that early stuff. And then coming down into the sixties, you know, I really I really got into it. Early the early reggae things like um, Jamaica's Cat, the Independence Song, mm-hmm. because even though even though I was in Guyana. We all tuned into to the stuff from Jamaica. Jamaica had like, um, I mean, if anyone in the Caribbean wanted to do anything with music, they would um, go to Jamaica. And yeah. uh, Jamaica had a couple of very, 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 very good studios, mm-hmm. uh, federal and uh, dynamic. So the music I was listening to was very early reggae. You um you what you call it um Deroyal Wilson mm-hmm. um, people like um, Boris Gardner Lynn Tate and the Jets you know I mean Maytels Maytels was one of the first how how was it coming to UK because obviously UK quite different to Guyana I imagine and to be honest even when I was in Guyana there was some. UK music like the Beatles and um, the Yardbirds and you know Rolling Stones, but we never listened to that kind of music. We consider that to be uh, head head top um, pop music, mm-hmm. and you know because Caribbean was really reggae and calypso, Mighty Sparrow, Kitchener, you know Maytels. Um, Hopeton Lewis, Delroy Wilson. That's that's Caribbean. Then we hear because um, the people who control the radios in the Caribbean, people like Radio Fusion uh, or Ready Fun, they would beam into us what was popular in the UK. Mm-hmm. And by then, the UK was going through its own um, kind of struggles with wanting, wanting to play things on like Radio Caroline because, you, you, you know, that's how, that's how the first Pirates in England started because the BBC, uh, what do they call it? The, uh, 
I mean, they weren't really broadcasting music for kids. They were mm-hmm. they, they were broadcasting music. I mean, it's similar to what's going on now. They broadcast what they think people should hear. Mm-hmm. You know, and unfortunately, that always only cover a section of the population. You know, and a, and another section miss out. So the UK had their own struggles. By the time I got here. We had our own struggles. You know, the black youth in, 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 in England, in London, had their own struggles. We couldn't get our stuff heard. Mm-hmm. We wanted to hear things like um, Mighty Sparrow and um, Lord Creator and Phyllis Dillon. And, you, know, you know, we wanted to hear music that we thought was special. Clancy Eccles, Prince Buster. We couldn't hear that. Mm-hmm. Definitely couldn't hear it on the radio. Every now and again, something would would get played, like um, yeah, the My Boy Lollipop mm-hmm. hitting. Desmond Decker was already hitting, hitting in the Caribbean when I left. When I left Guyana, Desmond Decker was hitting with like It Mech. And, and so by the time I got here, he had a hit with like... Um, some some of that stuff, and then you had young, gifted, and black, you know, going up the pop charts, you know, nineteen uh, seventeen, you know. And what, what about going out to hear music when when you were young here? I mean, did you go to dances or shows? I mean, was- as a young teenager, I mean, you had to go to you had certain song systems playing, mm-hmm. playing, playing in some halls around Brixton and. Uh, like Stockwell and things. Did you go to any of these dances? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You go, you go to, you go to. Uh, you know, that's that's the only place you hear music. Mm-hmm. Other than that, you go to a record shop. There are a couple of record shops around that had like. Are there, are there any sound systems you remember being particularly kind of impressive or important or memorable, like from those early yeah. days when you were young? Yeah, you had you 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 had two. Creed, you had Matador, you had um, song, song, Songs Organization, you had like um, Danny King, Neville King, you know, yeah, man, they're all, um, they're, they're, they're the top songs, man. Uh, what, what were the dances like? Full of black people, mainly black men. There weren't, there weren't much girls in the dance. Full. And there weren't any white people in the dances. None. Mm-hmm. It was a total West Indian Caribbean affair. Mm-hmm. 100%. And big boxes, and you know. So, what, what kind of sound? I mean, if you had to sort of describe the sounds to people of like what it sounded like, those the songs in the late 60s, early 70s. Nice and loud, mm-hmm. loud. Probably distorted to some extent. I mean, you know. I mean, I got into it because that's where like most of the guys went. Most of the people my 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 age and my that's where we got our culture. You call because don't forget, most of us we weren't even born here. We weren't born in England. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like 
yeah, we want eat eat Caribbean food, eat West Indian food. We want, you know, we want listen listen to music. You want to take part in the culture, you couldn't. You had no no black food shops, no nothing like that. Did you ever think of starting a sound or getting involved in sound system yourself from seeing these sounds and going to these dances? No, no, I never want to start a sound. No, no I thought I'd build, I'd, I'd build amplifiers and I built amplifiers for several people. I've built front end mixers, but I never thought to do it myself. You know, because it almost seems like a logical thing if you you like the music and you're electrical engineer and like those skills are needed and but you you, you never felt drawn to like building a sound oh no man i mean i had friends with sound systems mm-hmm. and and i and i supported that and i and i built equipment mm-hmm. i'd make sure it worked okay but i didn't really see fit and up to now you know it's a question people ask me from time to time but you know I don't, you know, I mean, I don't really like to do what everybody else like. I like to think out of the box. Mm. I mean, I was I was more curious as to why nobody was starting, no one was building studios because I thought at that time a studio would have been ideal. But then I'm coming from a more technical point. When did you first go into a studio or, or kind of witness a, a, a recording studio? Because I remember my first time, and it was just—I've said it many times on this podcast. It's like you know, <laughs> there was no going back after that. I mean, there weren't that many studios. They're either uh, faceless, like in Tooting, around the corner from where we lived, there was TMC that did did a lot of reggae stuff. You know, like people would come over here and like guys would record record a TMC. You know, and that was like a big studio upstairs, but. I mean, I only got as far as the door. <laughs> yeah, they the were public kinda. places, were they? No, and the thing is, a lot of time with studios, you didn't really, um, you didn't know there were studios. Mm-hmm. You could, I mean, it's a bit similar to here. E- even today, some guys came here and they said, you know, we've passed by this building hundreds of times and never imagined all this exists. You know, studios normally, they're quite low profile. Mm-hmm temples they're not um advertising for people from the public to come in and make a record you know so you wouldn't know you know and in fact some big and famous studios you could walk past them and you wouldn't know it's true so i i my my first session anything near to session was when i went with like um black fools and that was like Soon after I'd started building my my desk and my studio, I went to Gooseberry because Gooseberry was like the hottest studio in town. And that was like a 16-track, two-inch in um, in the West End, mm-hmm. down a basement. And um, Dennis Bovell was in session. Mm-hmm. And he had like a desk, similar circuit to what, to what I was building. So it was particularly interesting to see how how he configured the desk and he was like, and it was something solid and, you know. 
Yeah, it must have been, you know, if, if you were interested in how music and how sound was recorded to go to the studios and see Dennis Pavel working on music. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, I knew, I knew Dennis, you know, not, not, not very well, but I knew him before that because his wife and my wife went to the same school, mm-hmm. right? And, like, her sister was best friends with my wife. So I went by their place a couple of times and see him with a tape machine and he was like trying to edit and that kind of that kind of stirred up my curiosity about how quarter inch machines work and you know so um yeah 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 that's that's probably the first kind of session that I went to you know to make the leap from setting up your studio and kind of you know from not not from having a hunger to do it and doing it is like it's a bit of a journey really, isn't it? And you've got to learn like loads of stuff to kind of put together, even a basic studio. I think to start a studio, then you had to have some kind of electronic. Mm-hmm. I agree. Knowledge. Yeah. And because your, your records would either sung fuck up mm-hmm. or your records would sound good. It's a thousand and one things that you have to, that you should learn, even even at this stage. And if you if you get it right, you could make wonderful, beautiful recordings. Well, speaking of these wonderful, beautiful recordings, I mean, when, when did you start actually having a studio that you can record in and mix in, and you've got a finished kind of master tape? I mean. Where, where, what, what was that first, like, a Rewa studio? Well, some people would say that I still haven't started. <laughs> because, <laughs> but um, when I thought I could switch on, I think it's when I had eight channels in my desk because I built the frame. I built the frame first, and it was a module frame. Then I built every channel, you know, and I put it together then. So when I had eight and I bought a drum kit and I bought um, a piano and I built the reverb and I built a delay and we started to put some stuff down. I played I played a bit of guitar, then I played a bit of bass and um, and yeah, it was, I mean, I had a few microphones and then I put it down, but yeah, it was a lot of learning, learning about the mixing desk. I mean, thinking back about it now, it was crazy times because, you know, I really, I really didn't know what I was doing because I never, I never worked in a studio. It's a lot of investment as well. I mean, to get even a basic studio, like you know, the kind of sacrifices you have to make to kind of get that equipment to get the front room when your wife and your wife mother wanted um, the front room to um, live normally in, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they wanted a normal front room. You know, my lady, she was quite supportive. Mm-hmm. She, you know, I mean, in fact, she gave me the money to buy the first tape machine. <laughs> that was like four track and quarter inch, and then I went down and I put down the stuff, and then I got a drummer in and. 
then the next week, I mean, it used to be mainly weekends. The next week, I got a drum and a bass player and a piano player, and then I would start messing them up. In fact, I've just put together an album from a lot of those sessions. Okay. An album which is called 40 Years of Dub, you know, mm -hmm. uh, part two, and it's called um, The First dubs are the deepest you know <laughs> and so did that stuff see the light of day back in the day the stuff that you were never in? no never only just now mm -hmm. two days ago so 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 you got good timing with this interview cool because two days ago it's just been out and it's going to be on vinyl nice. and it's going to be on digital i don't know it might, might end up on cd as well too we why didn't that. that come out at the time did you feel it wasn't good enough or ready or or there weren't opportunities to put it out why, why didn't that come out then oh there was no interest mm -hmm. i mean who's interested in some guy in south london you know putting together some stuff and, and in a sense i wasn't really um i mean you know i didn't have the fan base mm -hmm. you know at that time there was no there was there was no interest you know Mark Professor Neil Fraser, the fuck is that about? <laughs> Everybody's you know, a nobody you know, to start with. <laughs> That's it. That's it. No interest. Nobody. Nobody was interested. But at some point, a record came out, and so how, how how did that? How did you move from that? Like, there's no interest. You've got this basic studio to like actually, this music's now out on the street. Well. <laughs> Persistent. You'd have to read. You'd have to read. Read my book. I've just, you know, more or less, just written, just written that that chapter. How I moved from, um, well, it's a few chapters. I bet. And it's a, and it's a long story. Because it's a jump, isn't it? It's a jump to make that kind of messing around to like doing it. Nothing was released from the four track days. I didn't start releasing stuff until the eight the eight track days, and the eight track days I got better musicians uh -huh. as well, and then I met. In fact, if you got time, I'll tell you the story. It's the longest story, but I'll tell you. I'm interested. I'm interested because it's important. I rewired my house because. We bought this house and the house needed rewiring, right? So, and the guy who rewired, one of the guys who rewired and decorated, helped me redecorate the house, was a guitarist, Jim, right? And Jim said he was playing in a band uh, on the Saturday. And if I wanted to come, he was playing in Brixton with a band, guitar. And if I wanted to come down, and I said, yeah, I'll come down. So I went with Jim to hear this band play. Band sounded nice, and I was getting excited. And when band finished play, it was at the George Cannon pub, which for those who are familiar with South London, would know it now as Hootenanny, mm -hmm. right? The guys in the band said, we're going to blues. 
we're going to a party in, in Stockwell up the road. Would you want to come? So I said, yeah, man. He said, oh, you could come if you give, if you give our young brother a lift. The young brother, who was Pepper, Sergeant Pepper, Garnet Cross, he and his mates came, jumped in my car, my little Datsun Cherry, and I was taking my cassette, which is some stuff that I just recorded, mm-hmm. right? And they, and they start emceeing. Sergeant Pepper, man, right from now. And they said, shit. This rhythm, these rhythms bad. I said, yeah, they're all excited. They said, you've got studio. So I said, yeah, I just built a studio and just, just recorded these tracks. So, and they're like, and they're like, could we come and record? It was music to my ears because, you know, I'm thinking, boy, people are interested in what I'm doing. And I said, yeah, man. So we went to the party, and after the party, they said, Monday, and I gave them the address. They came down Monday after, after school, because they're all schoolboys. They're all 14, <laughs> 13, 14. And they're like, put on the tape. And it's the first time I start to voice some people. And I'm pleased because now, um, I've got some MCs and some singers. And then Pepper said, boy, um, he's got a nice song for it. And if he could get his sister to come. So I said, so I said who's his sister? I said, Sandra Cross from um, Love and Unity. She sings, she sings with um, this group, Love and Unity. And they had some record of I didn't really know, you know, with Studio 16. And the next thing I know, she came and she did two harmonies on the tune. And, you know, I thought, shit, these people are talented. And I thought, let me release, let me release this record first. The next record I had in mind to release because my aunt had a good friend named Yvonne and one of Yvonne's daughters was singing, Deborah. And she was Deborah Glasgow. And I'd recorded um, a couple of tracks for Deborah. So Sergeant Pepper come back again with Santa Claus and Harmonies. That was, that was like number one. That was supposed to be Arriva Double One. And I went to the present plan, I think January uh, 29th, 1981. Yeah, I saw it. I just saw the invoice the other day from the present plan. Pressed a thousand. The guy who was representing me, a guy named Dennis, he had a local shop. And I'd actually named the shop for them. I named the shop Black Star Line for them, right? Shopping, crying. Reggae business was a business where you had to know somebody to get mm-hmm. it. If you don't know nobody, you can't get it. And it was a very aggressive business as well, you know. You know In terms of competition and stuff. No, not really. It was just a close shop business where mm-hmm. a, man, a man would just 
see and throw a punch at you or tell you fuck off what you're looking at. You know, it was it was a very tense. London itself was tense. And reggae, reggae London was tense and aggressive. It's no doubt mm-hmm. about it. It was a very Jamaican business. And if you weren't Jamaican, you had to either be tough. So you a new guy. Yeah, I'm a new guy. I don't know nobody. I barely know anybody. I'm not Jamaican and I had to get my way in. So it so, so it was not easy, but you know, I held my, you know. Uh, and they went Jetstar and then a week later he came back to me and he said, Boy, the tune moving, you know. Mm-hmm. So I said, Good. He said, If I were you, the tune moving, you don't want to be caught with a hit and you sell out the tune. So he said, You better order some more from the press. So I said, All right. I call up the press. Now, at the present plant was this typical racist Cockney white man named Bill. Mm-hmm. All right. Bill was blunt. In fact, when I first went there to press the records, the first thing he showed me on the shelf behind him, all them is bounce checks. And I've seen your kind before in here. And I've had enough bounce checks. So if you want records, you pay for them before. I said, fine. And I paid for them. So by the time I came to order the second record, he started to build up a trust in me a little. And he said, okay, I'm going to press these records. So he ordered them on the Thursday, on the Monday. Then he called me back. And he said, need you order the records? I said, yeah, yeah. He said, no, 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 cancel it. Cancel the order. <laughs> said, why? He said, well, Jetstar, them, the records didn't really sell out, but they moved some of it from one pile to somewhere else. So when he thought the record had sold, records hadn't sold, the records just, they were just in a different place. So I called Bill. He said, cancel the order. He said, ah, Mr. Awira, just in time. Your records just come off the press. Oh, man. He said, you could come pick them up tomorrow. <laughs> you know, bring the money with you. So I called Dennis. I said, hey, Dennis, man, you fucked me up, man, because I've got the press. I've got the press. I've got to pick up the records. Then they said, come on, listen. It's more than one press and plan around here. Just leave them with the records and go somewhere else. So I said, nah, Dennis, I can't do that. I said, I cannot do that. He said, so you do. You're going to pay an extra 500 pounds? I said, yeah. I have to do that. Boy, you're stupid, man. You can't do that. Just leave, man. You have an express in slow. Lingophone. You could go up Lingophone and press. Or you could go um, East London. Or Lake and Trent. I said, no. So I find the money. I went, paid bill, and I took the records out, took them up, took them in my loft because after a few weeks, they were just blocking up. 
mm-hmm. locking up the passage. And by then, people started to use the street. By then, I'm broke. Okay, 500 punk in 1981. Was you probably lot. buy a house in Leicester for that. <laughs> Very likely, because things were tough. And I was stunned. I was broke. And Sergeant Pepper was not a hit. It didn't get much airplay. I remember phoning Rodigan a few times because he just started. He was just on Captain Radio. And Tony Williams was on Radio London saying, hey, man, why don't play my record? Rodigan came out. First, it was hard to get him. He didn't come back to the street. I said, look, I just built a studio. Um, that's my first recording. Studios in my house at the back of the kitchen. He said, yeah, I've got it. He said, songs like it. Songs, songs like it. It was made in the kitchen. <laughs> I said, yeah, man. He said, I can't play that. He said, that's terrible. That's one of the worst records I've heard. He said, um, said man, sorry, I can't play that. Don't leave your day job. The competition. And in a sense, he was right. The competition out there. Because <clears throat> I had to compete with waiting in vain. Right? Mm-hmm. I had to compete with money in my pocket. I had to come big hits. with sitting and watching. I had to compete with the cream of the crop because you have to remember, mm. 79, 80, music sounds good. All those records were recorded in proper studios. Channel One was just moving from eight, from six, uh, four track to 16 track. Joe Gibbs was well tuned up studio. Harry J, you know, they were all proper studios with engineers with experience singing good. And you're in your kitchen in South London. A non-experienced engineer making a record and giving it to DJs to play. It stood no chance. And I licked my wounds and went back to my studio. When I went back to my studio, by then, Deborah Glasgow was supposed to come out. She, she'd done the voicing for the next record that's supposed to be Ariwa 002. I don't want nobody in the world messing around with my thing. By then, I'm broke. Mm-hmm. Baby just born, my first child. So... I'm getting some pressure from my wife about money. You got a mortgage to pay. Because mm-hmm. I used to work for Suncraft. Mm-hmm. Right? Then yeah, I the left. Yeah. People, yeah. You know, because I pick up a lot of audio knowledge from work with Suncraft, how to test things. But then I left and I started a studio and... Um, yeah, things were tight. Well, people have no idea like how how hard it is at the beginning, I think, and, and those disappointments will be enough to stop a lot of people. So you've invested all this money and time to make a record that someone's told you is no good. It's like that's, that's enough to stop a lot of people in their tracks. Oh, and I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did stop a lot of people, and it stopped me for a little while. Um, it stopped me enough to make me go back into the studio uh, 
I'm very analytical and I analyzed where I went wrong. And I realized that, boy, you know what? You know what? Radigan Wright, you know, the record wasn't, just wasn't good enough to match the matchup against Bob Marley and Dennis Brown. It simply wasn't good enough. And I realized you have to become as good or better. And then I came back to the business. What What was the first tune you put out that really made an impact and made you notice, like, wow, people are buying this. I've got to repress it. It's all happening. Young Girl, Young Girl. Um, young Girl by Black Folds, one of the first groups that I worked with. They wouldn't come and record when it was full track. <laughs> they thought, <laughs> not going to record there. <laughs> they didn't come and record when it was six, eight, eight track either. When I had 16 track, they got in, they came in, and they recorded 16 track. And they brought in um, Tony, to, Tony Benjamin, Reggae Regulars. You know, some other um, people who were fundamentally the first Arima artists, people like, you know, Unseen, people like Rockaway, who then disappeared, got locked up. I didn't see Pepper for a while because he got locked away as well. That's the thing at that time. A lot of guys got locked away. Mm-hmm. You know, there were police and police and black youth relationship was beginning to impact even on music and, and the artists then. So um, I recorded Family Love. I must have been more confident because what did I press? I can't remember. That's a different story at Jetstar then. Yeah, man. And I was seeing with them direct. I said, no, no, no more Dennis, Dennis and his antics. And I went back and just I came back and he ordered some more and then he ordered some more. And that's when I realized, you know, ah, it is possible to get a record to sell. And it ended up selling like a couple of thousand, mm-hmm. which is good for man. Yeah, and, definitely. It starts to generate a bit of money and a bit of, and then it, it, there's a couple of thousand records out there. So, you know, people are listening to it and talking about it. And, and it, it got played, and it got played by Rodigan, it got played by Williams, got played by Rachel London. And I thought, ah, great. And I started to work with um, Tony Benjamin a lot more. He, he, he is like, with experience from regular regulars and he came and he brought in regulars to play because he thought, all right, this studio sounded good. The machine sounded good. And then, um, you know, we could make records and um, other people started to come in and rent the studio, you know. I had a guy, a friend of mine, I Benjamin, he, he, he became a good friend of mine. He started to come in. He would, and he brought in people like Zabandis. He brought in Desmond Decker. Desmond Decker brought Laurel Latkin in. Mm-hmm. Um, then, Lester resident. Yeah, Laurel used to come in. He, he, he nice guy, man. Then I had uh, Benjamin told Shaka. He knew Shaka. He told 
Shaka called up one day. Shaka said, you want to come down? And Shaka came down. By then, I, I definitely went um, full, full time again, you know. And Shaka had some old one-inch tapes that he thing, and he brought in. We put on the one-inch and the record. Um, what's his name? Junior Brown. Mm-hmm. And at that time, the studio was basically like um, a week in hand. Then I. So is that the Warriors track, or Junior Brown? Yeah, yeah, Warriors. Yeah, we, yeah, man, yeah that's we record, such a great track. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah. We record Warriors. We record um, a few. Uh, 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 a few other tunes from Junior Brown. And was there like a different sick? Because obviously you've got this like a kind of like, you know, lovers rock, love songs or whatever. And then you've got um, like Warriors, like, you know, Junior Brown. It's quite a different kind of track. So did you, and I know that one came out on the Shaka label, but like, was it, were you trying to hit like different markets and stuff? Or was it all just like the, just the reggae? I mean, how, how did it work? Because they're quite different, aren't they? Well, you know, for most people, most people in England, even running labels, always pigeonhole themselves. Mm-hmm. I never. From day one, I never. Okay? If you listen to that Young Girl track on the B-side, there was, I think, Swapple's March song or something like that. Heavy bass line. And he, you know, I mean, to me, there was never that much difference. I mean, the studio was, was running. And I had, by that time, I had a lot of white guys coming into studio. That's the thing. I had... To, to do what? Just rent the studio yeah, as a yeah, commercial studio? Yeah, 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 yeah. To record, like, what, rock music and Rock and music, pop music. I had the Ruts DC... I had um, guys from the Boomtong Rats. I had all kinds of people coming in to use the studio. And um, it was getting so busy, it annoyed the neighbors. So it's still in your house at this point? Yeah, still in my house. The neighbor complained to the authorities that there's a guy running a business and keeping noise and while he wanted to sleep and all that, you know. I had to move. So I found a nice studio in Balham near the station. Nice place. And yeah, I was about to move in. The lady was picking up so much. I thought, you're going to outgrow that place in no time. And I thought, nah, let me look for another place. I found a place in Peckham. This place was like four stories. I love the basement because since, since going to Gooseberry, basement studio would be ideal. And I went into the basement, me and like some of the guys from Regulars and Dave, we all soundproofed the studio and we moved into Peckham because by then we started to do various singles that start that, that were hitting, we recorded. Aquism, True True Loving, recorded Kunta Kinte, Can't Run From Ja. All that was done after Ampex. Ampex really made a lot of great recordings. Oh, by, by then, Shaka had moved in upstairs. So Shaka had like the first floor. Upstairs, where he was, he was running his operation from. Well, no, no wonder the Shaka of those days was such a 
kind of potent force if you've got like Shaka and you in the oh, same yeah, building. Right. So you've got the studio and all these musicians and like you know the sound system all kind of working together. That's that's quite that's that's quite a heady mix, you know. Up to now, you could say we shared a lot of tracks about. Um, you could say a large portion of the tracks that were on um, the first, say, five Shaka albums were Arriva tracks, you know? And um, a lot of my tracks, you know, he was involved in those tracks as well, you know? I mean, he'd come down and sometimes he'd hear a tune and he'd say, boy, give him the bass and he'd play bass on a couple of tracks, you know? So it was, it was quite a cohesive mixture because you have to remember also Shaka knew Shaka was a bit like Dennis he took over from Dennis in a sense where he knew everybody in the business and I basically I knew very little people in the business like he'd have sessions and sometimes like Mikey Campbell or Aswood and people like Twinkle would come down and different people you know and you know I mean, he knew he knew everybody in the business, you know. So the studio got a, got accepted because when people come and they hear the studio, because there were there weren't many studios around. You said that you'd had, you know, the the, the the tip of the iceberg of selling a few thousand to things like really going off. So when 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 did things start to really take off in terms of like bigger sales? Because there were right. quite big yeah. hits. Just there? coming to that because we just tweaked up the studio. We tweaked up the studio, changed the reverb, changed the delay, um, got the meters to work, and got everything tested, and I got a drum machine, and we started to lay. And I started to lay, I thought, let me lay some cover songs. And I laid about four songs that day. And I played the songs to every singer that I knew. I played it to loads of people. And nobody wanted to sing any of those songs. So what was the reason? I think even though we were making sellers, we weren't making no big hits. And one of the tracks I laid was a track. uh, In fact, I laid two stylistics covers country living and I laid If I Love You because I really loved that first album. I thought that album was fantastic. That was the album with You Are Everything and um, Point of No Return. Every track on that album was a hit. You know, and, and I thought, right, country I played it to, I played it to Sandra Cross, played it to Sister Audrey, played it to a couple of Good male singers and new. Everybody said no, and I thought, "Shit, this is disappointing." Who could I get to sing these songs? So then I went back to went to Sandra Cross. She said, "Nah, man, it's gonna be just like the others. You just sell a few hundred and, and then disappear." So I said, "All right, Sandra, listen, <clears throat> I'll pay you a hundred pounds." come and sing the song for me. She said, all right, pick me up at my flat. Went wrong by her. Put her in my Datsun. 
zoom rung by the studio. She put on a lead voice too harmony. Paid her a hundred pound. Went away. This time um I got stealing, put on some lead guitar, put on some more backing vocal, 24 tracks on Chris. Then the week before I between me, Sid, and Lee Perry, we just mixed a bunch of stuff for Lee Perry, including Chris Blackwell is a vampire and all kind of thing that he had voiced, you know. And at that time, when we were mixing, funny enough, <clears throat> Lee said to me, run me a mix, run me a mix. He said, Sid, make him Make a mix, and I'll mix. Or I thought as I said. Then Lee, say, I was in front of the desk like I am now. Lee was on the other side of the desk listening to what I was doing. He said, nah, man, that's not mix. He said, come, come, get up, get up, move, move, move. And he sat down in the chair. said, you, what you listening to is wrong. And he showed me what I was doing wrong. He said, you want to make hits? Print that. And one pass. Zing, 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 zing. Uh. So yeah, run that. And I run that. And then, so the next week now, when I finished Country Living, I thought, let me try this. And I tried the different balance using what I learned from scratch. And I got used to it. I thought, right. The year turned, and I pressed the record. And that record, I knew it was going to hit because I pressed a thousand. When I pressed a thousand records, took it down to Jetstar, in fact, I took 500 to Jetstar. When I went to Dub Vendor, Dub Vendor said, give me 200. Normally they would take a 50. So give me 200. I swing back around two record shops. I take a stock. I only have 100 left out of a thousand. By the time I reach the studio, bring, bring, phone ring. Jetstar on the phone. Okay. Could I have another thousand of that song? I said another thousand. I said, you sure? I said, but you just had five hundred. Said, yeah, the finish. I said, finish. I thought someone's taking a piss. I don't want to burn my fingers by pressing wrong. So you sure? And Mister Palmer always talking a quiet one. He said, Mister Neil. Could we have the records? When, when could we have the records? Tomorrow? I said, no, I've got to order them. <laughs> so I called Bill. Because I stuck with the pressing plan. Stuck with Bill. Press a thousand. By the time I get next thousand, go wrong Jetstar. Barely had enough money to pay for it. The vendor said, boy, could we have 500? So ranting, by the time I make some circulate, go 
Body Music, Don Christine Burnham. Yeah, Ariwa, we hear you have a tune there. Could we have 200? Blah, blah. Calls was coming through left, right, and center. I said, shit, I can't, I can't pay for the presents. Good thing by then, me and Bill built up a nice relationship. Bill said, well, the boss is scared of pressing, of, of, of working with you, not really, but I like working with you. So look, I'll press the records for you. Pay me at the end of the week. Pay me at the end of the month. And that's how I got <laughs> credit because all the reggae guys who came before fucked them up. So they were scared. And, you know, right or wrong, when they see another black man coming pressing records, they just think, shit, can't take the chance. So I had to win them over. So anyhow, the record was going nice. Within three, four weeks, that record gone up to number one. Moving Dennis Brown, Gregory Isaacs, Janet Kay, moving all of them records and sitting at the top of the charts, right? The same week, right? My first son, Joe, was born. Right. Can you pick up Joe? Yeah. Rodigan called me up. Rodigan said, Neil Fraser, you, you, you done it. He said, listen, man, my apologies. I took back everything I said. He said, I don't know how you done it, but you moved from a position of a non-runner you're at the top of the charts because country living, they couldn't keep up. That record was selling at a rate of 2,000 a week and more. He said, I took back everything, man, because by that time, I'd done a few other records. Audrey sang the other stylistics record, If I Love You. That started to sell. And we had the formula by that time we done. Got to find a way, Lonergy, number two. So we had Country Living, number one. Um, and Horse Move was coming up. By the time Country Living moved from the number one spot, we had Horse Move take the number one spot. So, you know. But things must have changed so much for you in that period. Because if, you, if you've gone from like being a new guy and kind of not really being known to then just having number one after number one, then with your own, especially with your own school of artists, it's not like, oh, I've gone and found um, Dennis Brown or Gregory or something. You know, you're working with Sandra Cross and like. Sandra Cross you know, was a like, name. Wild Bunch. Wild Bunch featuring Sandra Cross. What, what, what me and other producers have learned from those times is that um, a lot of the artists, because, yeah, the artists them were good, but they couldn't handle the success because we give them the success on a plate. They weren't ready 
But it's funny because, like you say, it's on a, you give them on a plate. But look at the sacrifices and the work that you had to do to make it all happen right. and to, to juggle. Because success is not an easy thing to handle. And you, you suddenly got to juggle pressing these records. And then you haven't got any money because you've pressed so many already. You haven't got the money back. Is that, that's, that's kind of what I'm, you know, what I'm getting at is that, that ability you to run a business. No artist, produce music, do technical stuff in the studio, but run a business. You run well. a business. And at the end of the day, there was this artist producer backer that existed because the artists always felt that the producers were robbing them. Right? And um, most of the time, the producers were doing all the work because we found, we found the songs a lot of the time. Now and again, the artists would find the songs. But we created the conditions to record the songs. We pay the musicians, we pay the presence, and up and up to that point, we give the artists the name. We give them the success. They would then go and earn from the tracks. We earn from the sales. And um the pop market who I work with, people like Massive Attack and the Orb and Black Box and all these people, they would, they would not give the artist any name, no credit. Soul to soul, never give the artist no credit. We were the fools. You know, we give the artist their success on the plate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the producers in the background, really. That's, that's the mistake the reggae business did, including myself, including all the other producers like Sir Lloyd, Sir George, you know, even Dennis Bovell, you know, all Winston Edwards. We give the artists success on a plate. And is this the kind of stuff that's going to be you're going to deal with in your book? Because I know you're writing a book, um, and because I'm interested in your in just you know whether you call it like a business strategy or your your kind of skills in these areas. It's like it, it's, they're amazing and unique, and it's kind of it's the sort of the, the mad professor approach my to things book, and like what you've learned from a career in it. My book deals with everything because I'm in business and I'm still in business. I've been in business from 1980, you know. I mean, at that time, don't forget, um, racism was always there. Racism was always there at any level. Whether or not you could blame the present plan for um, drawing their conclusions when another black guy come along saying he want to play, he want to press records. but. Us, the second lot, the second range of producers, we got the brunt. People like Marcel Shaka, Sir Lloyd, Sir George, administrators, you know, mm -hmm. all those labels. We got the brunt of the damages caused by the first set of producers who didn't pay the bills, you know. Because at that time also, I had like 
Pato Banton, first album, Mad Professor Captain's Pato Banton, recording like two sessions, two five-hour sessions, recording, to the top, selling like a single, same time as Country Living, selling mm -hmm. as fast as some singles. That's when I realized this studio sounded like no other studio. And it wasn't easy for um, any English studio. The only other time, okay, Easy Street had a little run with like um, Carol Thompson and um, people like Sugar Miner. Mm -hmm. A long time ago, though. You're still sitting in the chair. Easy Street, they had hits around 81, 82, but by 83, they had stopped. Gooseberry had hits around 79, 80. It didn't last that long. Our, our hit period started, proper hits, started 85, and it, and it run, because once we found the song, we had a lot of people from Jamaica coming in to use the studio. We had people like Jermaine with Audrey Hall. We had um, fucking, um, John Holt. We had Dennis Brown. We did Gregory Isaacs. We did anybody who is anybody mm -hmm. who are coming to Godfrey Road. Peckham and the studio was busy. We didn't even, after a while, we didn't even get that much white clients anymore. We got a few, we got like the orb and um, we got like um, a restriction and some guy, a lot of guys from Bristol and you know, like pre massive attack days. And, but the reggae business found Ariwa. Mm -hmm. And all those who were running from it, they run towards it. By then, everybody thought, oh, we could build studios. And then we had a few people came along and they tried building studios because they thought... There's more to like going to the shop and buying stuff, isn't there? You know, as you could hear, even making records now, you could make... You know, everybody could make a record. You could use whatever software there are and you make records. But could you make a record that could still be played in 30 years or 40 years? You know, you know, you know that's the difference. But the, the craft I had to learn from like 81 and things like where the signal go to and where it shouldn't go to. Those were important things, and you still have to learn. Yeah, and it's, and it's creating a studio that's got like um, you know, that's got its own blueprint, got its own sound. It's got it's like you can tell, you can tell an Ariwa track as soon as you hear it, and it's like that's that's what I've always strived for. In what I do is to try and have some kind of identity in it. So it's like I just want to do my thing. I don't want to do what everyone else does. I want to do my thing, and it's like those those things are really important. And the more analog i think you do things it's, it, I, I do believe it's possible with digital if you just if you know what you're doing but the more analog you 
you've got, the more you've got some kind of identity, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, dig- the digital world, um, the problem with the digital world, I think, is that Whatever identity you could achieve, someone else could achieve it. Unless you're really deep into it on a level that other people aren't, maybe. Yeah, but if they take time, they would, they would, they would, they, they would get there, you know, because every everything digitally from you from you going to the digital world, it could be cloned. I mean, we've got we've got things in the studio that are so individual, you know. Sometimes it's frightening. Um, <laughs> But we've been talking for quite a long time, and um, there's but there's there's a, a couple of things I'd like to ask you about because um, it's like there's again it's like you've got such a long career and it's so hard to sort of fit it into like a into one interview. It's crazy, and it's like the people listening to this podcast, they'll you know a lot of them are fans of a certain style of kind of dub music, and they're like, oh, you should ask Prof about this track or that track. But and I asked you about this before a few years ago when we were somewhere at a festival, but. One album that I'm kind of interested in is the Lost Scrolls of Moses because right. it's it's quite different, and like it's, we're talking about digital, and that has got you know it's clearly like an analog dub album, but it's got a lot of digital futuristic stuff the way I hear it, and I guess when I heard it when it came out in the early '90s as well, really sounded far out, but it sounds to me it sounds a bit different to some of the other stuff. So I don't know if there's anything around that album that's kind of Lost Scrolls was recorded in Jamaica. I don't know if you know that. Okay. No, you never know that. No, I, I don't, I've right. not even taken the time to look into okay. it. I'm just kind of... In- Lost Scrolls okay. was recorded at um, Music Works, Gussie Clark. He moved from Slipe Road to Windsor Avenue. And I went in there when he just moved to Windsor Avenue. And, you know, I saw him built Windsor Avenue. And I was like, boy, this is great. He built a deliberate studio, knocked on an old house and built Vince Avenue. And he had, whilst he was building uh, the proper, the two proper rooms at Winston Avenue, he had a little side room. And that, that was where we laid Lost Scrolls of Moses. I went, I went, I went Jamaica with Steel and Audrey, and well, well, we went around the Caribbean. We went Jamaica, we went Barbados, we went Trinidad, we went Guyana, and we we're taking notes, and you know, but we spent about a week Kingston. Then we went Ochi, and it was it was really nice. And, and we laid, no, and we laid, we laid, we laid um, all those tunes at um, Windsor Avenue Music Works, and was Sly on drums. Obia did a bass line. I think Steel did a couple of bass lines, um, and the horns were people like. Niles and Winston. I think we did some with Dean Fraser. Yeah, it was a nice, nice kind of dub album. And I mixed it. Yeah, it's a great album. I mixed it here. But when I mixed it here at Arriva, I changed up the studio. 
because I came back from Jamaica and I thought I'd build this room like a Jamaica room. So I thought, you know, you know, I really love the sound of Music Works and all those records. So I thought, yeah. Yeah, in mean, that time, like early 90s, some amazing stuff coming out of Jamaica, really, from the last golden period for yeah, me. Yeah, I thought I'd build a studio like, like Gossy, like Music Works. Because just for me, I was, I was young and I was just discovering it and I was learning myself and it kind of stuck out as something a bit different, but something really sort of super modern. And I kind of all, you know, it's, it's got a kind of special place in my heart just, just because of that, because I was growing up with it and learning about mixing myself. And there's this album that sounds yeah, really because different. Because I'm sure that's about the same time you, I think it's you might write a letter to us to do an apprenticeship or something at the Riva. Okay. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah. I yeah. saw a letter just the other day on the files because we keep nice. You still keep, got it. Great. We keep everything here. We keep. Oh, what an archive, man! That's keep, amazing. We keep everything here. We keep all our recordings, and if we can't find them straight, we keep all our letters. You know, we keep. Nice. We keep all the all the letters of people who wanted to take us to court as well and stuff like that. <laughs> That definitely wasn't me. I just wanted to come in and have a look at the studio and learn from the legend. <laughs> no, it definitely wasn't. <laughs> so what, what, what's left to do? I mean, for someone who's achieved so much and had such an amazing career, and like, what, what, what's left of interest for you to do? Like I said at the start of this interview, I still need to make a record that people accept. I still haven't done that. I need to make a record that people could play everywhere. Nice, nice. Money don't interest me in that way. But when, when I make such a record, I'm going to know that I've truly become an engineer. Well, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Prof, you've made so many. I mean, the list is endless. Um, but I think it's good to be critical of your own work. It's, it's good to not sit back and go, I've done it. I think it is good to have that, I've not done it yet. That's what keeps us going, I think. I mean, I come in here every day and I don't have to. I could easily be at home mm-hmm. and sit and watch um, Place in the Sun or something on TV. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I love being at home. You've got a nice home. I've got June come out around the other parts of the studio and I could leave them to it, but I still love going through the tapes and playing things and thinking, ah, this is a good record, but that's a better record. Or I could listen and I could say, like I said to you before, the periods between 1985 and 1990 were the best periods where everything on those tapes I think are magic. You know, the way the song kissed the tape. Well, listen, at the, the end of the podcast, what I do is I ask everyone the same question, which is um, to, like, what would you want written next to your name in my book of Darb? And like, like I say, every, every two weeks when I do a new podcast, it's like it's getting bigger and bigger, got loads of amazing names in there. A lot of the people you've spoken about, you know, Dennis Pavel, Maccabee, and, and Sandra Cross, of course. Um, what would you want written next to your name in the Book of Dub, my professor? Method to the madness. Yeah, I, 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 from what I see, I agree. 
that's that that's a great way of describing it from what yeah, I see. Yeah, that's the title you know. of my book, Method to the Madness. Wicked. I'll have to come down and see yeah, you man. down there at some point in the future. I'd love to, just to, you know, if that's all right. Yeah, it's in the same place. It's a unique place. It's very, it's very special. Thanks for joining me and Mad Professor for this 31st episode of the Life in Dub podcast. Don't forget to share the podcast and to help get these stories out to more and more people. Remember that if you want to get in touch, you can email me at vibronics at gmail.com and don't forget there's 30 other episodes of the Life in Dub podcast ready for you to listen at lifeindub.com or wherever you get your podcasts. So thanks again for listening and I'll see you all again in two weeks for the next Life in Dub podcast.